I would love to have you take your Bibles and uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3 as we continue in this new new series, The King and His Kingdom. And of course, today we'll step into some of those very specific areas under those titles. My sermon title today, He's the King, I Tell You. And of course, some of you right away know where I got that line. Does anyone know where I got that line? See, thank you, Matt. Yes, exactly. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Um, I, I'm going to begin uh, by reading a section from the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia. I realize some of you are uh, Narnia fans and others of you uh, roll your eye. Maybe you don't, uh, but are not so adept. Uh, but I want to read a little section, a, a word of introduction. Uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, master of all kinds of writing. But one of his one of his series, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, is an extended allegory. It's an, a telling truth about God and His kingdom by setting up a, a an imaginary kingdom where things work a little different, but there are realities that mirror what what we know. For example, there's an evil power, and then there's a good power, and they're in conflict, and and so on. Well, there are also fun things like talking animals and. Um, so on. Well, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are four children who have made their way into this imaginary kingdom. They're trying to figure it out. You know, animals don't really talk, and it's always winter at the time and never spring. And they're about to meet, or headed to meet, uh, Aslan, who is the Christ figure. And there's a conversation I want you to listen in on that will help us take steps toward the text today. All right? So forgive me for reading to you from a children's book, but here we go. And I'm skipping around if you know it by heart. So forgive me. Uh, the children are having, or most of the children are having a conversation with some beavers, the beavers. So anyway, here we go. Uh, tell us about Aslan said several voices at once. Who is Aslan asked Susan. Aslan said, Mr. Beaver, why don't you know? He's the king. He's the king of the whole wood. Uh, but not often here, you understand, never in my time or in my father's time. But word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the, the, the white queen. All right. It is he, not you, who will save Mr. Tumnus. That's a, another part of the story. Uh, then a little rhyme he steps into. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. He says, you'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know he's the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I'd rather he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Now that you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Isn't that fun? Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And there's my title this morning. And we lead into Matthew 3, where he's the king is one of the, one of the main elements. Knowing who Christ is, is one of the missions of this gospel. And it's one of the most important things you and I need to do to understand who Christ is as King, as God, as Lord, and who he is to you in his, in his work in your life. Who he is, who is he, who is he? I want to pray for us that both of those elements will be accomplished and we'll step into the text. Our Father, we need your help as we come to your word today. As always, there are so many distractions. Our minds and our hearts quickly go to other places, the activities of the week, the pressures and stresses of it. Yet we come this morning, our Father, with the word of God open and again ask you to meet us here. You know right where we're at, every one of us. You know what we bring. You know what we need. And so, Father, I pray that by the Spirit of God that you would use your word to help us and encourage us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On your study sheet, there are a number of elements of review, and uh, those would be good for you to take a look at along the way here. And the little uh, introduction there to the text. Uh, If you look with me for a moment before we read... Uh, In Matthew 3, we're going to browse the the whole chapter. We'll read it in two different sections. But I'm I'm looking at it in two different categories. The first 12 verses that deal with John the Baptist and a little sermon he preaches and and so on. And then, starting in verse 13, his immediate interaction with Jesus when Jesus comes to be baptized. And we'll look at those those separately. But I I think in a helpful way as as we come along here. All four Gospels reference the work of John the Baptist, all, all for good reason, of course. Uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner. He was the one who was to prepare the way, and so he does as we come to Matthew chapter 3. I want to read the first 12 verses, and uh, then there are three different areas I'm going to comment on into, those, into that heading. Matthew 3, then 1 through 12. Matthew writes this, In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And I'll stop right there and pick it up a little bit later. Wow, that's quite a sermon. That's kind of like, well, welcome to John the Baptist Baptist Church. And then he, then he just kind of reams them. Um, it's it's a quite a scene, uh, riveting, I'm sure, to the observer. But there are several things going on here. And you see the, the different headings that I want to comment on. First of all, who was John the Baptist and what was his mission? Um, again, we come to the text. Some of us having read the Bible for much of our life, others of us and others listening at other times, uh, having not that depth of experience and wondering who these people are. Well, John the Baptist is uh, identified in all four Gospels uh, using the quotation from Isaiah 40. John references that about himself. It's interesting to me, the Old Testament closes, and I give you the text there, Malachi 4, the last two verses, speak of an Elijah who is to come. That's how the Old Testament closes. There's an Elijah coming, an Elijah-like figure who is going to come. What happens after the close of the Old Testament? You remember. Silence. 400 years. So, so the Old Testament closes with there's coming an Elijah who's going to prepare the way. There's this Elijah figure coming. It's going to reconcile the hearts of people. And then it's like the door closes and nothing happens in, at least appears to happen in the progress of redemptive history for 400 years. And then, and then the coming of Jesus. So John identifies himself uh, with his mission as described in Isaiah 40. It's interesting. If you read all four gospels, they quote different parts, but they're all quoting the same thing, putting the same words in, in, in John the Baptist's mouth. Now his mission then to prepare the way for Jesus by calling people to repentance this baptism of repentance, announcing his arrival, which you see in a very, very striking way in the gospel of John, when Jesus comes to be baptized, you remember, and John, uh, the, the apostle says, or sorry, John, the Baptist says, behold, look, look, there he is. It's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So announcing, announcing his arrival and then validating his ministry. And I reference here a text that we're going to get to in a few months. But again, just trying to touch on this bigger theme today of who's this guy. In, in, in Matthew 11, there's this interesting account toward the end of John the Baptist's life and ministry. He's already in prison, and he is very soon to get his head cut off. But he's, he's wanting to know that he fulfilled his mission, John the Baptist is. And so from prison, he sends to Jesus some of his followers, and he says, Are you the one who was to come? Or shall we look for another? And again, we'll preach that text more fully. I suspect that the reason for the question is that Jesus wasn't quite what John the Baptist was expecting. We'll preach that more fully uh, in a couple of months. I think that John had an idea of what a Messiah should look like and wasn't quite sure Jesus was it at this later time. Here's the beginning, though. That's kind of the conclusion so there's John the Baptist. Now, this, this bigger question, I think, in terms of theological conversation, what is this business of the kingdom of heaven 
And how is it at hand? And um, again, some of you are very familiar with some of the debates and discussions about these topics. It shows up in Christian writing. It shows up in Christian conversation, in preaching. Um, it's a big theme today. The kingdom of heaven. Um, frankly, people wondering, is this it? Are we living in the kingdom? Is the kingdom just a spiritual kingdom and we're a part of it? Is there an actual, like, like a kingdom, right? A kingdom age, as some have spoken of down through the years. Some have called it a millennium. Is it, is it, is it coming yet? Or is that all just misunderstood? And there are different church streams. And so I'm going to tell you exactly where I'm coming from. All right. And these are in those categories of things you can look at and go, boy, I, I see it or I don't know. And it's okay. But nonetheless, it's the approach that I, I want to, I want to go to with you. But you see in chapter three, verse two, that we just read, John the Baptist is coming. What's the nature of his announcement? Well, he says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, for those of you who study scripture or read carefully, you notice that at times in the gospels, Matthew uses the expression kingdom of heaven almost exclusively with a few exceptions, five or six exceptions. He refers to kingdom of heaven. Some of the other gospels speak more clearly about the kingdom of God. Uh, down through the years, some have tried to make a distinction between the two. I'm not convinced of the distinction. I think it's talking about the same thing. And I, that's my opinion t today, uh, might study a little more and come to a different conclusion, but I think it's the same thing. And I think that the term kingdom of heaven is, is a nod to the Jewish hesitancy to use the name of God too flippantly. So sometimes in the Bible, you will find someone say, um, heaven was silent or, uh, something like that. We say things like that. Do we really mean heaven or do we mean the God who lives there? And so I, I take it as, as the same kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Now, I want to look with you at the study sheet. I want to just touch on some themes that we're going to more thoroughly address, I know, in weeks ahead. But here are some things I'd like you to think about. First of all, it is in the Davidic covenant. If you go back to 2 Samuel 7, and I'm touching on just some highlights. The kingdom idea runs all the way through the Old Testament, really. It does. You can go all the way back to Genesis and pick up themes of this. But these I want to comment on. Uh, in the Davidic covenant, God promises a forever king. Is what I've called it, a forever king. Uh, and again, we're going to be preaching that in December. Um, you'll, you'll get very familiar with that as the theme. But the Davidic covenant, God promises David that he will have a king someday seated on his throne and he will reign forever. Well, good Jewish people read that and said, so apparently there's going to come a king who's going to sit on David's throne and sit there forever because it says it right here in the Bible, for goodness sakes. The prophet Isaiah now, and I give you one, one, only one of the texts. There are others. The prophet Isaiah outlines the conditions in the coming kingdom. Some would look at that text and say, well, I think that's talking about the eternal state. And I would want to have a discussion about that because there are elements in that text that don't fit the eternal state. And I realize uh, if you're not used to discussing these things, you might be saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's all right. Just take notes, smile and nod, and you're going to be fine. Now, I want you to, if you don't mind, turn with me to the next one. The book of Daniel, the prophet or Daniel describes a coming kingdom and a coming king who will arrive suddenly and conquer all earthly competitors. And I just want to go here for, uh, oh my goodness, this shows up in, in thought form. 
throughout the Gospels. But if you, if you know where to find the book of Daniel, Old Testament, just a couple of things. And again, I'm, my goodness sakes, by going there in a cursory manner, I don't mean to minimize the significance of what's here. But I'm going here anyway. Um, the book of Daniel, my goodness sakes, um, is, is, is full of things. Uh, that would make a person sit up and stay up late at night and study it. Uh, there's a, in chapter two, there's a, a dream and so on that's being ex- expounded upon. Daniel, of course, saves the day because God tells him what this mysterious dream is and its interpretation. And I'm skipping all the way into chapter two, verse 44. Okay, not going to tell the whole story. We take the rest of the morning. And that's not my purpose. I'm after this element of the kingdom. Uh, but you see in the prophecy of Daniel, uh, this expression, chapter 2, verse 44. And in those days, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand, what is it, forever. And just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, clay, the silver, and the gold, that's Everything that precedes these verses, a great God is made known to the king. What shall be after, after this, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Well, people who read the old Testament prophet said, so it looks to me like there's a kingdom coming. Chapter seven. Similarly, Daniel seven, Daniel 7, and I'm going to pick up uh, reading, again, another uh, image, another dream, and so on, uh, beyond the, our, our purposes and time today. But uh, nonetheless, I want to establish something here. Um, chapter 7, starting verse 13, okay? Daniel's explaining a dream. He said, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, which, by the way, is why in the Gospels, Jesus is often called the son of man. It's not only emphasizing his humanity. It's a reference to the one spoken of in the book of Daniel. So there's a prophetic element here. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory. And what is it? A kingdom, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, I'm just saying this, this word kingdom and the idea of a kingdom, a forever kingdom with a forever king runs through the Old Testament. So it is no wonder that even after 400 years of silence, God's people, the faithful, were still walking around saying, where's the kingdom? Where's the king? See, and then John the Baptist bursts onto the scene and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you can better believe that people who knew their Old Testament perked up their ears and said, well, let's go then. I am so ready for that kingdom, kingdoms. This would be great. Where's the king? If we're going to have a kingdom, let's roll with that. Now, as we'll see in the, as you read through the Gospels, there was an expectation that that meant certain things like Rome is occupying our nation. Let's boot them out and let's go with a, a good Jewish king. So clearly a political savior would be the right way to go. So I list several things here for you. Then the next item on your study sheet, this coming, and I've called it a literal kingdom. I still believe that. So if you're wondering if Jay believes there's a literal kingdom, yes, I'm saying it a couple times. I think it's a literal kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom, uh, anticipated by Jewish people living in Jesus day. And I'm giving you again, I'm 
I'm giving you a lot of information you can study, wrestle with, or just say, I don't get it. It's fine. Mark 11, uh, 10 is one of the references where it's very clearly spelled out. This is, this is at the triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday day. All right. That's the reference I'm giving you. And even as the crowd said, Hosanna, Hosanna, and so on, one of them says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. And Mark records that the coming kingdom. And of course, they're shouting this as Jesus comes in. They're saying it's the kingdom time. Son of David, of course, is a nod to the Davidic covenant, the Davidic king. And of course, Acts 1. This is a striking uh, text because it's right as Jesus is getting ready to ascend to heaven. Are you guys staying with me on this? Giving you a whole fire hose full of stuff here today. I realize Acts chapter one. Now, this is as Jesus gets ready to ascend to heaven. Uh, he has just finished 40 days or, or with the disciples after his resurrection from the dead. And he spent, the text tells us, a lot of time speaking to them about his kingdom, about the coming kingdom. And so in Acts one, as he gets ready to leave and they don't see it coming, they say to Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you're going to? Restore the kingdom to Israel. It, you've done that. Dying on the cross, rising from the dead. This is pretty cool. Is it now? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. The times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. And that goes all the way to the ends of the age. And then he leaves. He leaves. Right as they're wondering, when's, is it now? Is the kingdom now? And he sends him to work. Well, summary then, here's, here's my understanding of this. There's a little literal kingdom yet coming. As the king of the kingdom, Jesus brought the kingdom near. Yes, he did. And there are and were whispers or inbreaking of that future kingdom. Um, when I say near, now I haven't really addressed the at hand part. And I'll do so briefly now. The idea of at hand, listen carefully, it's not the same thing as here. And I, I summarize a wealth of information in that little sentence um, to study the, the, the word that is used in the Bible for at hand is to see that it never really means here. It means right around the corner coming soon, almost here, right, right prepared to break in. Uh, it's, the, it's a term that Peter uses in his uh, letters later on when he says the end of all things is at hand. And then he says, you better be praying. So he doesn't mean it's here. The end is now. He's saying, oh, I can feel it. It's, it's, it's almost here. So Jesus, of course, as the king of the kingdom is the one. Uh, kingdom is at hand. Yes, that's right. Because the king is present. So certainly right there, more than I'm going to say about kingdom elements later was the kingdom being offered here. You'll hear us talk about that in the weeks ahead. If just to, to, to bait your good theological questions is, is he offering the kingdom is, could it have come then? Oh my goodness. These are things that people discuss over the, well, I'd say the water cooler, but we don't do that anymore. Uh, now moving, moving back to John's statement in verse two, repent. Repent. It is interesting how often the command to repent shows up in the Bible. It was a subject of Old Testament prophets. It was a subject of the preaching of John the Baptist. It was a regularly used word, and I referenced this in your community group notes, in the preaching of the apostles throughout the book of Acts. 
Repent. Repent. It's interesting that this is something that Martin Luther got a hold of, and I've referenced that at other times, when he nailed his 95 theses on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg and thus really lit the Reformation on fire. He was talking about this element. What does it mean to repent? How does one do it? Do you mean penance? As in the medieval Roman Catholic system? Is that what you mean? Martin Luther would say, do you mean penance? And of course, his, the beginning of his theses that he nailed to that door would say, uh, the entire life of a believer should be one of repentance. So what do we mean by this? What do we mean by this? Before I look with you at the study sheet, I want to read you a couple of lines from D.A. Carson in his commentary on Matthew's gospel when he discusses this. I want you to hear this because sometimes we, we, we use some of these expressions that he's going to comment on. Uh, he, he uses the term, the Greek term. He says this is often explained etymologically as to change one's mind or more popularly to be sorry for something. So to repent, to be sorry for, we might say that to our kids. We're trying to bring it down, right? So to be sorry. And he says, neither rendering is adequate. That is complete. In classical Greek, the verb could refer to a purely intellectual change of mind. Uh, you could say repent to change your mind in classical Greek. And people would say, okay, I get it. Change your mind. And sometimes it's presented that way. The New Testament usage, though, has been influenced by the Hebrew words, and he gives a couple of them here, uh, to be sorry for one sin or to turn, uh, naham and, and shuv, if you're into that sort of thing. And then he says, uh, what is meant here in the New Testament concept of repentance is not merely intellectual change or mere grief, still less doing penance. He's not talking about doing penance, like making up for it, Right. Rather, he says, a total, a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief that result in fruit in keeping with repentance as referenced here in your text uh, in verse eight, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So a to repent then involves a change of mind that involves a change of direction and if there's not a change of direction, then there is rightly called into question whether repentance has taken place. So if all we're doing is feeling sorry about something, you with me? This gets really personal quickly. If all we're doing is feeling sorry, uh, that may not meet the definition of biblical repentance. If there's been no change. So we, we wrestle with this about other people. And I think rightly wrestle with it about our own selves too. If there's, if there are no changes taking place, heading a different direction, if there's, if there's nothing shifting to a, a different route, is there indeed re- repentance? So these are things, these are things for us to think about. Now on your study sheet, then I'm giving you a couple of things. What is the required repentance? What does it look like? It's setting aside confidence in my credentials, heritage, or good works, trusting God's provision for my salvation in Christ alone. And I look with you here, uh, starting at verse seven, the text open in front of you. Uh, John the Baptist is calling the Pharisees and Sadducees even to repentance. And I picture this scene. I ask you to do this in your community group notes. I, I would love to sit in on all of your conversations. How do you picture the scene? All right. Um, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't come to be baptized, did they? 
they came. Why did they come? Hmm. You get to talk about that. This, they came for a reason. There's a dog and pony show going on out there with this weird guy, right? He's dressed funny. He's a fashion nightmare. But people seem to show up and listen to him preach. I mean, what? A, huh? Don't you want to go watch? And besides, he's talking about religious things. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees come and, and John the Baptist looks at them and he calls them a bunch of snakes. I mean, this is, these are terms of endearment, right? You bunch of snakes. Wow. Okay. Well, welcome. Good to see you too, John. Thank you. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Okay. What is that about? What is that about? This gets very personal for us too. Uh, John is identifying correctly that there were people then present. And may I say there are people today who trust even in family heritage to have a relationship with God. And John the Baptist says, don't even start. We have Abraham as our father. We're on the good list. Come on. Don't you understand? We're, we're, we're children of the covenant. I mean, we're in this good line. We're the good conservative Jewish religious people. Come on. What do, you, what do you mean repent? I mean, look at me. And John's saying, oh, for goodness sakes, man. Don't, 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 don't give yourselves all this credit for being children of Abraham. Like that gives you standing with God. Children of who? So your grandpa was a missionary. Your daddy was a missionary. Your mama taught Sunday school for how many years? I don't know. What? And that gets you in the door of heaven, does it? You've attended church for how many times? You had perfect attendance in Sunday school. Back in the day, you even got the little pin back when they did Sunday school pins. Well, bully for you. What, and this gives you standing with God? Wow, really? Summer camp prayed the prayer a dozen times. Gave money regularly to good causes. Carry a big Bible. No, I mean really big. Don't cuss very often. And, uh, you know, what else do you have? And along comes Jesus and says, seriously, God is able to raise up people just like you from a bunch of rocks. That's what he says. God can raise up children of Abraham from stones. You mean to tell me you think that's how come you have standing with God and how right that he would say, repent, repent. Your confidence is in the wrong thing. You're trusting yourself. You're trusting your own credentials. You're trusting your family heritage. You're trusting your genetics. Well, of course, look at us. Our whole family is always, we've always been Christians. John the Baptist would come along and say, I'm sorry, my friend. That's not how you get into the kingdom of God. Nobody gets in on your heritage. You don't inherit in terms of a physical nature. No. Setting aside confidence, I put here in front of you, in my credentials, my heritage, my good works, trusting God's provision for my salvation in Christ alone. It's acknowledging and grieving my proud rebellion against God. Rebellion? You say rebellion? Come on. I haven't rebelled against God. Yes, well, you know what? Every time you trust something else to give you standing with God, it is rebellion against God because you're, you're disagreeing with what God says is true about you. It's an ongoing change of mind. Ongoing, I said. Ongoing change of mind and life direction. All of those things, I think, give some substance to what this idea of repentance is all about. Wow. Now, I step into the next little category, verses 13 to 17. I want to comment on the baptism of Jesus, uh, noting the continuity in the text, because 
you a paragraph starting in verse 11. John the Baptist is talking about this one to come, certainly Jesus, and this, this element of judgment that he will bring. Very fascinating and will fit into our comments here in the, around the next paragraph. Verse 13 then. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. That is John baptized Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up out of the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Wow. A striking scene talked about, preached about, written about, uh, theological significance. What is this all about? Uh, several things here that I'm, I'm going to comment on again. Reams of, of paper have been filled to talk about this little paragraph. I'm going to limit my comments to a couple. Uh, first of all, John's baptism helped or sorry, Jesus baptism helped John recognize him as Messiah. If you read all the gospels, each one speaks about this and helps our understanding. Okay. In, in John chapter one, John the Baptist says something like this. The one who sent me to preach, the one who sent me to baptize told me. So John knew ahead of time when you baptize somebody and heaven opens and there's this, this, the spirit descends. It says like a dove. We've often said, well, it's, it's, it's a dove, right? You go, Hmm. Hmm. There's reams of paper written about that. Do you mean a dove? That's an imprecise term. Although people use the dove, um, would a, would a bird watcher say, oh, yep, that's a classic, whatever. And use the term for a dove. Well, there's some discussion about this, some ambiguity, but was it actually a bird sat on Jesus shoulder, like a homing pigeon? Uh, what was this like, like as, or like the spirit descended like one of the gospels. I think it's John says, or maybe it's Luke in, in a, in a bodily form. What was that? The spirit descended nonetheless. And John says that he was told ahead of time, the one on whom you see the spirit descend, this is the Messiah. That's him. That's him. So, so this, this moment, this coming of the spirit of God, um, marked, marked Jesus. It, it's, it signified to John the Baptist that he was indeed the Messiah. It also marks the beginning of his Jesus formal ministry, uh, performing signs that would validate his identity, all culminating in his death on the cross. Why was Jesus to be baptized? Um, some would say, well, you know, I'm not so sure I understand this. He didn't need to be baptized. He didn't need to repent of anything. Uh, again, there are a whole lot of things written about this. Certainly he was identifying with us identifying with us. Uh, some would say identifying with Israel and so on by this act, but fulfilling all righteousness, it seemed to be important to Jesus. And it was an important moment to say, now this formal time of ministry is beginning. Now the next two comments here, I, I just, boy, there's so much involved with this, but you get to think about them with me. Jesus ministry involves two comings. Okay. At the beginning, I don't think people understood that the first coming for redemption 
the second for judgment and restoration. The Bible unfolds this in the, oh, please get this, the progress of revelation. One of the things people regularly misunderstand about reading through the Bible is they miss what's called progress of revelation. We get it in reading all kinds of other books, and then people come to the Bible, and they just kind of forget how they read all kinds of books. That is, the story is moving along, and it's, it's, it, it's different here as it is here. It doesn't mean this is not validated, but it just means the story is moving along. So as Jesus comes the first time, people didn't see two comings. They saw, here he is. The kingdom's here. Wonderful. It's time. They didn't see the cross. They didn't see another day. Jesus kept giving them hints. You know, there's, I'm going to go away, especially in the latter part of his ministry. The first part of his ministry, as you see in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom and so on. Then, and we'll talk about that as, it, as we see that the text play out, he began to say more things about the Son of Man is going to be crucified and die. There's progress of revelation. Sometimes people run into trouble, and I reference it for this reason. They read something like in the Old Testament and say, well, shouldn't we be doing that? And they don't see progress of revelation. They don't see that Christ fulfilled something. And they go, well, you guys just pick and choose. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> progress of revelation. Christ fulfilled that. He, he came to be, he came to fulfill. No, we're over here in the story now. Okay. Well, two comings, two comings. Um, again, there's, there, there's so many places this shows up. I'm going to give you just a couple, I, I think, to help us think about this. Uh, the first coming, of course, culminated in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But in Luke 24, you remember the, the walk and conversation Jesus had with those uh, the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Remember this? As he told them all things about himself from the scripture? There's a moment at the beginning of that conversation when, I think it's Cleopas, one of those, said to Jesus, um, we were hoping that this one, this Jesus, we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. We were hoping that hope is now past. We thought he was going to be the Messiah. We thought he was going to redeem us. We thought he was going to say, it's now past. That is, he didn't understand. No, he just died on the cross and rose from dead. He's walking with you today. That's pretty cool. All you were hoping was that this was going to be it. You don't see another coming. You're not seeing this. Okay, so it's just interesting to see two comings. Now, I referenced these two on your study sheet, Luke 4 and John 14. Um, Luke 4 tells the story early in Jesus' ministry where he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath in Nazareth, and they gave him the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to read, and he, he turned in the scroll, again, now long scroll, not turning pages, he went to Isaiah 61, and if you read the text and you see it there, as, as the story's told in, in Luke's gospel, he begins to read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He sent me to deliver and so on. And he, if you look at Isaiah, Jesus stops in what to us would be middle of the paragraph, rolls up the scroll, hands it back and sits down. And he says to them today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Okay. Where does he stop? He stops right between all kinds of good things and restoration. The next sentence says, and the day of vengeance of our God. He doesn't read that. He stops mid paragraph. He sent me to do this, 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 but it's not the day of vengeance of our God. That's later. He closes the scroll and says, that part's done. Here I am. So Jesus, even there in Luke 14, fascinating to read that story. Jesus was explaining to them all the way along. There are two comings. The first for redemption 
the second for restoration and judgment. You'll see. So two comings. Now, John 14, three, of course, is where Jesus is preparing to go to the cross. And he says, if I go and uh, if I go, I'll come again and receive you to myself where I am there. You may be also. So he's referring to another coming. Now, give you that. Now, this next little paragraph. Oh, my goodness. Things for you to think about. Are you ready for this? Often when we speak about the rapture of the church. Okay, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Might be newer conversation to some of you. The rapture of the church I'm saying here is not the same as the second coming of Jesus. Does that rock your boat? Colloquially, casually, we often speak about, I can hardly wait for the second coming. And what we mean is the rapture of the church. Technically, not the same. There's a lot of confusion because of that lack of specificity in how we use the terms. Okay. So properly understood, uh, the first involves our, our meeting him in the clouds. People have said this. I've been in theological discussions with people who should know better uh, because they've been theologically trained who will refer to the rapture of the church and say, well, that's the second coming and all this stuff's supposed to happen. And you don't believe that. And I'll say, no, 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 hold on. You called it the second coming. I never do. Because technically the second coming of Jesus to the earth is different from us meeting him in the clouds. Okay. So. Zechariah 14, I'm giving you. Jesus' feet land on the Mount of Olives. What happens? Kaboom, big earthquake. It says Mount of Olives split in half. Wow, that's kind of cool. And another event, him coming out of the, uh, Revelation 19, recognized, recognized by all as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So uh, in terms of theological precision, there is a significance in differentiating between what we call the rapture of the church, meet him in the clouds, the Lord in the air, and so on. First Thessalonians 4 and the literal second coming. Okay. Wow. How you guys doing? That was a, that was a boatload. That was books. That was reams condensed into, to one sermon. And I, I, I want to close with those little parts there at the bottom called response. And this is what Matthew's really after. Okay. Uh, you might say, well, this is t- John three or Matthew three is telling the story of, of, of him being baptized. Well, let me tell you, that isn't the main point. It's not the main point. The main point is he's the king. He's the king of a kingdom and you owe him your life. Matthew is all about establishing the identity of Jesus. That's what the baptism of Jesus did establish to John Jesus identity. Jesus is the king. He's the king. I tell you, according to Mr. Beaver, he deserves your trust, your loyalty, your obedience. And John the Baptist said, and I'm giving you a quote from John uh, gospel, John chapter three, forgive my pulling that other phrase in, but it's a good one. He must become greater and greater. John said, and I must become less and less. That was John's, so to speak, his mantra. This Jesus must become greater and greater. It's more about him than it is about me. I'm going to fade into the, the, the dust of history, and it's going to be about Christ. And I present this to you as something that should be your plan for your life, too. We often live as though it should be, I must become greater and greater. And John the Baptist sets us right. No, he must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. It's more about Christ, less about me, more about Christ, less about me. I ask you here, are you trusting Christ? This, this, Messiah, this Messiah, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Savior, are you trusting him as your Savior from sin? And if you are already, may I ask you, are you going to serve him with your life? Older, younger, will you serve him with your life? Will you serve him with your life? He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's close this study morning uh, with, with prayer. 
Father, we thank you so much for how, how Matthew helps us to look at Christ and see him not as an ordinary human, but as, as, as someone else, the Messiah, the Savior, the coming King. Our Father, may we see him as well in that way. The King, the King, I tell you. The one who is King of our life and King of our heart. The one who is able to care for us and meet our deepest need. Thank you for being that to us. Help us to see you that way, to draw upon you, your resources as the king. Thank you, Father, for your work today through your word. We trust you here in Jesus' name. Amen.